Hello, welcome back to the Matt Pfeiffer Experience. I am your host, Matthew Pfeiffer, and I have on today a very special guest. I have on Brian James. He is a mediator out of Illinois with CDL and Associates. I'm very excited to have this conversation. Most of the time we are interviewing lawyers, but guess what? When we're talking about divorce, mediation also becomes a very big and important part of a divorce process, whether you are mediating between you and your attorneys, or maybe you are required to go to a mediator, or maybe it was just suggested that you do do the entire divorce process through mediation. And so I think it's very important for us to discuss and kind of talk about what that looks like. Maybe mediation is in your best interest. Maybe it's not. How do we tell the difference? How do we know whether or not this is someone that we can actually compromise and meet in the middle? Or maybe this is something that we need to go into litigation for. Because guess what? Unfortunately, we can't please everyone, can't satisfy everything, everyone, and that's very true in divorce as well. So thank you very much, Brian James out of Illinois. Um, thank you very much for joining us and allowing for uh, us to pick apart your brain and, and a little bit about what you do. I'm going to toss it over to you and, uh, and let us know a little bit about, about yourself and, and how you got started. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate it. And people call me James all the time, so don't worry. Uh-huh. So I have been mediating divorces in private practice for the last 19 years. Prior to this, I lived in the courts with Mm -hmm. domestic violence families, helping them work out parenting agreements, helping them try to, if possible, keep a family unit when a domestic violence offense happened. Mm -hmm. I saw firsthand what going to court did to people. I didn't like it. I saw good people become enemies simply because... Their attorneys, unfortunately, talked them into things that didn't make sense, Mm -hmm. got them to not talk to each other, and that affected their children. Wow. So though I mediate both parenting agreements and financial agreements, I always tell my clients, I don't really care about your money. Yeah. Money comes, money goes. I'll help you with it, but I care more about keeping you focused and working together as good Mm co-parents. So when we are done with the mediation and the divorce process, you were as good as co-parents or better co-parents than you were before. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, my, so, that's my goal for doing this job. Um, tell me a little bit more. Let's go a little bit more into that origin story. I, I typically say that people don't get into this industry, you know, naturally. A lot of times people back into it. What made you decide, you know, originally to work with domestic violent victims? So many, many years ago, I uh, did internships mm-hmm. in different probation departments. And found a niche in helping families after a domestic violence offense happened. Yeah. So domestic violence is tough because the offenders, the recidivism rate is so high. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to, no matter how much counseling there is, it's very hard to change someone who is a domestic violence offender. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of times it comes from their family. Yeah. You can trace it back to the offender's, parents, dad, you know, dad was abuser. Mom was probably a survivor. And in my time, I actually started seeing children of my clients coming in as offenders. And so that cycle of violence, it just, it got to me. You know, I wasn't able to help people in the way that I wanted to. Mm -hmm. So as part of that job, I was helping people put together parenting agreements and switched, you know, left my county job with good benefits, good days off, 
went into private practice with no income, no days off, and been doing it ever since. So you obviously have a long history. What what are what would you say are some common themes whenever you you were working with domestic violence victims that would make things more difficult when it comes to mediation? Um, when they are in fear. Mm -hmm. So domestic violence survivors as a whole are very strong people. Mm -hmm. Not to be stereotypical, but most of them are women. Most yeah. of the offenders were males. Mm -hmm. But they're very strong people. Unfortunately, the person that they are with is stronger than they are. Mm -hmm. Physically, mentally, emotionally, and it beats them down. Mm -hmm. And it's it's very sad because they are in that cycle also. They're not with somebody that compliments them, that right. is a partner with them. But I have found in working with high conflict and domestic violence that when the situation is right for mediation, there's a lot of power in domestic violence survivors negotiating agreements with their abuser uh -huh. through mediation. Uh -huh. It's empowering. It lets uh -huh. them know that they have a voice. You know, nowadays after COVID, I meet with all my clients via Zoom. I don't uh -huh. meet in person anymore. Right. So when I have a domestic violence family I'm working with, they don't have to be in the same room together. Right. They have to be in the same residence. So they're not they don't have to worry about that person intimidating them on the way to my office or intimidating mm -hmm. them in the meeting. Yeah. And and those agreements, that gives them a sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. It makes them feel better because they've been beaten down for many years. And yeah. though I work equally for both of them, I'm not on I'm not on the survivor side, I'm not on the abuser side. I am there for both of them. Mm -hmm. Also there to try to make this process easier and make it so they can become better parents together. Even though there's been a domestic violence offense. Sometimes there's a domestic violence offense that just happened and it's still in the court system. Sometimes there's never been a domestic violence offense, but there is abuse. Right. It'd be physical, could be emotional. I see a lot of financial abuse by somebody. So it's, it's helping those people try to come to some sort of agreements that will work going forward. One of the questions I think that a lot of people who are listening to this would have is the person who is the offender, whether they have narcissistic traits, whether they're a full-blown narcissist and very difficult to work with, has to have their way. Um, I think there's always an assumption that that person can bully you as well. Uh, can, and, and I'm sure that people have tried. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to try to negotiate from your perspective with the person who is more of the offender, who might be more bully, and uh, they try to use some of those strategies and tactics towards you and not just their victim. So the, every mediator is different. We all yeah. have our different styles. My style is very direct and upfront. Mm -hmm. If I, I'll tell my clients many times that I'm going to say things that you don't like. I'm going to yeah. call you out if in my experience you're doing something inappropriate, not right, and that will, that will happen. Like when you get someone who's a, a severe narcissist, you know, there's different mm -hmm. levels of narcissism, but you yeah. get your pure narcissist, they're not going to change. Yeah. They, they, they see no wrong. They're always right. Everybody else is wrong. They blame everybody else. Yeah. So getting them to reach good, appropriate agreements is difficult, but I have learned if I can work it 
So they're the ones that feel like they're the ones making the suggestions. Mm -hmm. Then they're agreeable. Yeah. Because they're not going to listen to their ex because their ex is stupid and doesn't know what they're doing and they're inferior. They're, they know, you know, the, the narcissist knows everything. But yeah. if I can get them to reach good agreements, I don't care if it came out of my mouth or his mouth or her mm -hmm. mouth. You know, it's kind of funny. Like, you know, one spouse will say something and the other spouse doesn't believe it. But if I say the exact same thing, they're going to believe it. Yeah. And it's also interesting with narcissists. I'll get calls from them in between the meetings. Yeah. You know, telling me what I should do, mm -hmm. telling me to do this. You know, it's like, well, that's not how it works. You know, I, I am a neutral. I, I, I am. I, I do know what I'm doing. But then there are some narcissists that mediation just doesn't work for. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sad. It's it when you when you realize that you were married to a narcissist, you know, in certain ways during your marriage, it's a good thing because they're very they can go to a car dealership. They're gonna negotiate a great deal. Mm -hmm. Good at certain things. But when you're getting divorced from someone like that, it's it be, can become a war. Yeah. And there are times I've tried to work with people like that and it just pulling teeth to get to the simplest agreement. And sometimes I can't work with those people. What does it look like when you can't work with someone? Uh, I'm thinking of some states where mediation is actually a requirement to to go through a divorce. And what what are some things that maybe you've seen that maybe you can share with our audience that you can say like, you know what, uh, maybe maybe it's the first meeting or maybe it's the fourth meeting, and you're and you can kind of tell that this really isn't going anywhere. What are what are some signs? Um, that maybe someone else might be able to to see as well. Um, it's when someone's not able to come to a simple agreement. Mm -hmm. You know, there's holidays. You know, there's there's Columbus Day slash Indigenous Peoples Day. You wouldn't yeah. think that'd be a hard holiday to determine who gets it. Well, narcissists want to win at everything. So yep. they want everything. You know, they're not willing to compromise. So when there's things that should be simple to agree to, yeah. And they're not, yeah. then I need to have a discussion. You know, I, yeah. I, I call that my come to Jesus moment with my clients. Yeah. I will stop and say, guys, this isn't going anywhere. You know, we mm -hmm. spent three hours on this and you've gotten nowhere. You haven't even gotten any closer. Why are we here? Right. You know, I'll, I'll challenge them and I'll say, you know, something has to change or we have to end mediation and you have to go to attorneys. Yeah. I don't want to waste your time and money and my time when you're not going to come to agreements. Yeah. And sometimes with the narcissist calling that out and them knowing that they don't want to go to court many times mm -hmm. will help. But yeah. it's really getting that person to believe that they're the ones making the decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and it it, it takes a, it takes a good skill set of a good mediator, a good therapist, a good professional to let them believe that they're the ones that are doing it. You know, I don't wasn't well, matter to me. They can get credit for it. You're a hundred. You're hundred percent correct. Yeah, I, I do want to give this quick disclaimer because I know that there's someone probably out there listening who is a victim who thinks that they might be able to to uh, to do this themselves. If you're in it, you're too far close into that relationship to do what he just described yourself. The power dynamics are never going to be a in a in a situation with a mediator or a therapist. We're able to do these things because we don't have any type of attachment, physical, financial, or anything, children or any of those things. But because 
of the power dynamics within a relationship, it would never work for a victim to be able to do some things that he, he just described. But, and then also, just like he said, that uh, it, it does take a lot of training. It does take a lot of, for those of you who followed me for a long time, you guys know that I've done therapy with, with, uh, with narcissists. But very different dynamic when you're the professional versus the victim. So, uh, so quick disclaimer, don't try this at home. Yeah. Yeah. You'll, you'll get, you'll get rolled over on mm -hmm. and it's sad because I, yeah. I work with people who are divorced and when I look at some of those agreements, I'm like, oh yeah, this person just steamrolled their spouse into everything. And sure enough, yeah. they did. And yeah. it's sad, you know, because once you sign on the dotted line and you're divorced, those are your legally binding agreements. Yeah. Talk you know, to us a little bit about that in terms of post, uh, post divorce, uh, uh post-divorce agreements that you've seen and, you know, versus like pre-divorce decrees that you've done? So pre-decree, so Illinois is a, is a state that requires mediation. Mm -hmm. So when someone's divorced, if they have a parenting agreement, they're required to mediate anytime they have an issue before going to court. Then when people are going through a divorce, if they have not reached a parenting agreement, within so many months after the divorce has been filed, they are supposed to be ordered to mediation mm -hmm. because no judge wants to decide what happens with the children. Right. You know, judges have no problems deciding finances, but when it comes to people's children, the judge is going to be the person that knows the least mm -hmm. about the children. So having that person make a decision for you is scary. Right. Now they sometimes have to, Mm -hmm. But many times the judges will keep pushing people to negotiate and to mediate so they don't have to make that final decision. Yeah. And I use that when I'm working with my clients. I use that to my advantage. I'll let them know what could happen if they go to court. You know, right. Why let someone who you don't know, who's going to know very limited information about you, tell you what you're going to do with your children for possibly the next 15 years? Right. That's scary. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, what are some common themes that you see with some of the post post divorce issues that you that you see? Uh, like you know, what, what I'm trying to get to, and what I want um, what I want the audience to see it here is there's there's some things that you should really be paying attention to, close attention to pre divorce while you're going in, going into it because uh, I, you've been doing this long enough, I've been doing this long enough that there are some common common themes. That that I that I've seen over and over. I, I can you know I'll, I'll go quickly before you do. Uh, one of the biggest things that I see is I tell people make sure that every single tie that you have between you outside of the children are cut. I've seen people. Uh, you can keep the boat, but I'll keep it in my name. You can keep the house, but let's keep both names on it. Um, you can have the car, but uh, I'll pay half or what? You know these arrangements that sound good when you're negotiating in the beginning and then within, I mean, it's, it never lasts long. It's within the first three months, six months, definitely within the first year. Now, all of a sudden that person either stops paying or uh, doesn't pull their end of the bargain or the minute that you start dating someone or the minute that you don't do or don't agree <laughs> with whatever it is that they want, all of a yep. sudden that's when they pull that rug out from underneath you. Um, but tell me, tell me from your, your perspective and things that you've seen is that, kind of accurate to what you've seen as well, or uh, what other what other themes and patterns have you seen? 
Yeah. Keeping things tied together after the divorce financially and then something goes wrong, like you said, is why one of the reasons people come back. And yeah. it's difficult because I'm like, but this is what you guys agreed to. Yeah, yeah, I can't change what you agreed to. We can talk about this, but knowing the way you are, you probably never should have agreed to this in the first place. Right. Because you know, most of my clients come to me voluntarily. They're mm -hmm. actually really nice co-parents. They probably still love each other. They just want to get divorced. Mm -hmm. So sometimes those people can keep things together in both their names if it makes sense. Like right now with the housing market, you know, mm -hmm. interest rates are 8%. I have clients that are on loans together at 2.9%. And they're agreeing to stay on the loan together with a lot of conditions. Yeah. So it, you know, if there are agreements where people are on something together, like the things you were saying, make sure that that agreement is ironclad and spells mm -hmm. out every what if. If one payment gets missed, this is what happens. If mm -hmm. and you spell it out. The biggest mistakes I see post-divorce when reading agreements is that they're not detailed. Yep. They're not black and white. There's a lot of gray area. I have I have clients that, you know, just a recent one, their parenting agreement says that they will split the driving 50-50, mm -hmm. but that's all it says. Yeah. And they're one of the things they're arguing about is who drives each way. What does 50-50 mean? Is it to a house? Is it to a neutral location? Yeah. So a decent part of my job is post-divorce is tying up things that are too ambiguous in the divorce agreement that they yeah. realize too late. Oh yeah, we shouldn't have done this. You know, mm -hmm. the kiss of death is when clients say, oh, we'll just figure that out later. We'll yeah. work it out. Mm -hmm. I'm like, if you put that in your agreement, we are going to be seeing each other after your divorce. Yeah. You know, my job is to try to ensure that I don't see my clients again after their divorce. Yeah. So we you know, offer have you ever seen any any uh, decrees that are actually the opposite end where they're too detailed? Um, you know, I'm thinking of some of the some of the de the decrees where there is um, what is it called um, I forgot I forgot the term where someone where you have to agree to like babysitters or like uh, first right of refusal. Um, yeah. I've seen, seen like where it's too detailed where there's first right of refusal. They have to call within 24 hours, and you know then someone you know calls within 23 hours and person declines, you know, just uh, what, what does it look like in terms so, of that? So I like detail, mm -hmm. but depending on the clients, the parents, too much details is set up for failure Yeah, because they're going to use it as a tool to hurt each other. Yeah. You know, so you have to be very careful when you're working with people going to going through a divorce. And this is why I like my job so much Yeah, because I tailor the agreements to my clients, mm -hmm. you know, if they're super high conflict, then they need these sort of agreements. Yeah. If they really are good co-parents, they need these kinds of agreements. If the right of first refusal is an issue, then we have to put some detail in there. Yeah. Now, one thing you're saying about you know issues that I see is when there is makeup time. Um, so some parents are okay doing makeup time with each other. Yeah. Like you know you're sick and you can't have the kids for a couple of your days, you get makeup time. Well. If parents are high, that makeup time is so troublesome, yeah. especially when it doesn't spell out in the agreement when it's going to be made up. Yeah. What does it mean? Is it 24 hours? Is it, if it's a weekend day, can the makeup time be on a weekday or should it be a weekend? You know, it's just so many issues that I see when it's just, well, yeah, parents will have makeup time and nothing more. Yeah. That just leads to so many problems. 
What about um, when it comes to um, when it, when it comes to to parenting and like the the phone calls, the phone calls at night, the staying in touch, you know, throughout the week. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, that I've seen, I know you've probably seen, is it sounds great on paper, but then sometimes, whether it's with the best of intentions, people struggle with abiding by it. Number one, people have lives. The children have lives. They have after school activities. They start to grow up, but it becomes a very big problem later on down the road. Some people are doing it very intentionally, right? Trying to avoid, you know, the other parent. You know, I've seen that. Can you kind of talk about the two different dynamics um, where it's intentional and then also where it may not be as intentional? So when it's intentional is when someone thinks of their children as possessions. Uh-huh. You know, they're my kids. It's my right to speak to them whenever I want. Uh-huh. Well, no, it's not your right. You know, uh-huh. a good parenting agreement is going to say, this is when mom has the kids. This is when dad has the kids. You can't communicate with your children 10 times a day right. when they're with the other parent because you're now messing with their time. Right. And, and and you know this, you get people, I get people that do it on vacations. One parent's with the kids, everyone's just inundating the kids with texts and phone calls. And they're doing it on purpose. Yeah. You know, I, I don't mind if the parents can agree that there's a call, you know, a half an hour before bedtime. Yeah. But don't expect it every night because sometimes bedtime is is a World War Three getting your children right. out of bed. Or they're eating late and this and it doesn't happen. You know, mm-hmm. it's those parents that demand it. It becomes a problem because that's an automatic violation. If you're not doing it at this time or then they start making allegations. Oh, you mm-hmm. were on the phone call. I could hear you. You were in the yep. background. You said these things. You know, but now I'm, some of those clients, they're having to do recorded Zoom calls with their children mm-hmm. just to wow. ensure that the other parent isn't messing with stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to look at call logs sometime to see when a call was made. Did the mm-hmm. parent respond? You know, little kids, it's the parent's responsibility to mm-hmm. make the phone calls and pick up the phone. You know, once right. children get a certain age, now you get into their cell phones. Mm-hmm. What if one parent doesn't want the kids having a cell phone? Yeah. What if there's a tracker on the cell phone, like, you know, like a Life 360 that you know where it is at all times, which is good yeah. for a kid. You want to know where they are. But then one parent says, well, you're using it to track me. Yeah. You're using it to see if the kids are home at a certain time. Uh-huh. So, you know, every good thing can also be used as a bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. What about uh, something that, I, that I've seen over time is... Sometimes the kids, I mean, I shouldn't say sometimes, the kids start to get older and they start to have a lot more independence. Um, and then the other parent starts to accuse the other parent of of alienation, of doing it intentional or trying to, to cause a separation between the two. Uh, is that something that you've seen? And what do you do in situations where it's just kind of like the kid really just doesn't want to talk on the phone? Are they now have a boyfriend or girlfriend and they're just a little bit busier. Uh, and how would someone be able to tell the difference between like, yeah, this is really just our kid gaining more independence versus there might be something else going on. You can, you can sometimes tell when there's something else going on based on the history in the past, yeah. you know, were the parents working together as good co-parents and then this comes up. So usually that's not purposeful, but if yeah. one parent's always been a problem, Mm-hmm. And saying, oh, yeah, so-and-so's sick. They can't come over tonight. But then you find out that they're not sick. Mm-hmm. That's when the that's when you can, it's more alienation type. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and there's some people that still don't believe when the alienation exists. Yeah. You know, there's, there, you know, there's some people that don't. But when it 
when it is truthful and it's happening, that's when you try to get the people into therapy. Yeah. Yeah. You get it to find out yeah. why is this happening? I know uh, parental alienation has become just a very hot topic and, you know, you have people that don't even believe it exists. You have people who say it absolutely exists. It, you know, the behavior absolutely it, it exists. Um, you know, from a mediator's standpoint, what have you seen in terms of the behavior? You know, uh, is it something that that exists? You know, are people keeping, you know, intentionally trying to weaponize children? Uh, is it someone who, you know, the the theory behind it is that the people who do it are just trying to keep their children safe? Some people are saying that this is just something that uh, that some people say, you know, as an excuse for their bad behavior. Uh, where where do you where do you lie with it, and and what what do you see from a mediator's mediator's standpoint? So I I initially like to believe the good in people, mm -hmm. but I I know there isn't. Mm -hmm. You know I know some people that the the reason for the alienation is it's it's valid. You know mm -hmm. someone is a bad parent. Someone's yeah. an alcoholic. The children are truly afraid of that parent. Yeah. Then I have other times where the one parent is just putting a lot of lies into the kid about the other parent. Yeah. You know, making stuff up and blaming that parent for the divorce and he or she doesn't love you anymore. That's why they didn't show up on time or this or that. So, you know, as you know, there's some bad people out there and they will use their children as a tool yeah. to hurt the other parent. They don't mm -hmm. care if it hurts their children in the meantime but they'll do it to hurt the other parent. Yeah. So it's trying to find out why the alienation is there. Or like mm -hmm. you said, it could just be a kid that's a teenager that they don't want to spend time with either parent. Right. And, you know, especially if the other parent doesn't live in the community where the kids are mm -hmm. and they live maybe further away. Yeah. So going to that parent, they're going to not be around their friends. They're right. not going to be able to go to the homecoming game. They're not going to be able to do this with their friends or their boyfriend or girlfriend. They're not going to hang out because they're an hour away. Yep. So I try to help parents understand that, you know, it's really not you. Mm -hmm. It's the situation. Yep. Yeah. Your children love you, but as they get older, they distance themselves from their parents. Yeah. Most kids do. Mm -hmm. And, and that's a re that's a sad reality. And yep. that the parents don't live close by each other. Yeah, that person who lives further away is going to be the one that gets hurt. Yeah. And absolutely. that parent, you know, and again, if things are in a, the parents aren't in a good relationship, that parent's going to automatically think it's the other parent doing it. Yeah. And it's, it's Brian, kind of you hard to figure out who's doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes it's both, you know, one. Yeah, exactly. One Sometimes it's both. Yes. Yeah. Yep. One parent is alienating themselves and their behavior is causing things and their the other parent is actually doing is doing some things you know I, I think that one of the things that doesn't get talked about enough with what we do is is that sometimes it is both uh you know we always assume that it's one or the other parent when sometimes both parents have a lot of bad behaviors and maybe both are on the cluster b spectrum or both are dealing with unhealed trauma you know and, and ultimately regardless it affects the children and sometimes unfortunately it's even the teenager yeah. doing you know but yeah. they're like well i'm not going to come to your place unless you buy me a car yeah. Or unless you feel like, yeah. you know, taking advantage of the dysfunction, exactly. knowing that they can play, play, play the, to the two parents against each other. Kids are, kids are master manipulators. Yeah. <laughs> they are. <laughs> Brian, thank you very much for joining us. It has been an absolute pleasure. You are a wealth of knowledge. We appreciate everything that you have shared with us today. Uh, tell everyone where they can, where they can find you at, tell everyone, you know, how they can 
link up with you or if they, you know, if there's information that they can find about you and uh, how can people support you? Sure. The easiest way is to go to my website, which is www.yourdivorce.org. Or you can call me directly at 312-524-5829. I'm always happy to talk to anybody about this process, even if you don't use a mediator. Um, just to explain to people what mediation is and how it works. So you only work with people in Illinois, or do you work with people outside of Illinois? So I work now, so I'm in the northern suburbs of Chicago. So gotcha. over the last 18 years, I work in the Chicagoland area and southeast Wisconsin. Gotcha. Now I'm via Zoom, so I can work anywhere in Illinois and anywhere in Wisconsin. Awesome. Well, for those of you who are listening or if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you guys go to the comment section down below. Let Brian know something that you may have learned today, you know, a takeaway that you have uh, that you're going to be able to use or, or knowledge that you've gained. Make sure you guys go down to the links in the show notes as well and make sure you guys give him a follow. Make sure you guys give him a shout out. Send him some DMs and some love. Let him know that you appreciate him uh, on the show and something that you've learned as well. With all that being said, thank you very much and I will see you in the next episode. You guys have a good one. Thank you, Matthew.